Good morning, good morning. Little Waylon Jennings kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you today. Thank you for being here, as there is no place I'd rather be than right here with you, talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. So, thanks for dropping by and spending a part of your week with me. Hope that you and yours are well, as it seems like the world is slowly creeping back to some sense of normalcy or a new normal, whatever that might be. But my family decided to keep our annual vacation to Galveston. So we took the kids down to the beach last week and uh, did a little fishing, took Henry out to the jetties. We we chartered a trip and uh, man, I looked over at him after about 45 minutes and we were catching sheep's head and I think the goal was to get into some big red drum. So I look at Henry, who's on his first ever saltwater fishing trip, and uh, his facial expression has gone from smiling to kind of wincing, and he's getting a little pale, and I'm like, bud, you feeling okay? He's like, ah, my stomach hurts, Dad. I look to the back of the boat, and my sister-in-law is laying down at the back of the boat because she feels like she's going to Ralph. So my father-in-law and I are the only two that are catching fish and we're having a blast, but you know, I don't want them it, to just be so miserable that they don't want to do this again. Uh, so I tell the captain, said, Chris, we got to go back into the bays or just find something else to do, even if we don't get into any more fish. And we did catch a couple trout on the way back stopped at a couple inshore spots. And overall he was smiling again, felt, they both felt better immediately after that. But it's making me rethink my plans to take him 40 miles offshore for Red Snapper here in a couple weeks. <laughs> we'll see uh, if his mama is going to let him do that. I don't know. Maybe Dramamine or there's something else out there. If you have any ideas, uh, parents who've taken their kids offshore, uh, Henry's seven. So love to uh, to know what you think. Shoot over any advice to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. I've heard Dramamine just kind of makes them drunk and that there might be something else out there that's better. Um, anyway, what is on the docket for today? Let me tell you. It's going to be a good one. So pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, did you know that there's a new disease that is affecting North American rabbit populations? It is not native to North America, but it got here as fast as it could, and it is really putting a hurting on some of our rabbit populations. Uh, It is called rabbit hemorrhagic disease, very much in the same vein as uh, EHD in whitetails. Dr. Bob Dittmar, chief veterinarian of Texas Parks and Wildlife, he makes his return to the program, and we will talk all things concerning this new disease, what it means for hunters. Is it transmissible to humans or other animals? Uh, Lots to discuss, and it is rapidly spreading across the lower 48. Then we will shift gears and talk about a truly fascinating predator-prey relationship 
in a couple of species that I, I couldn't believe it when I heard it. And that is fishers. So weasel, basically kind of in between a wolverine and a pine marten. Um, and lynx, which is, you know, the Canada lynx is essentially a very close cousin of the bobcat. And if I told you about this relationship, you would think it would be the lynx preying on the fisher. Uh, but think again. It is the other way around. With the much smaller fisher taking down mature adult lynx. This all comes, by the way, from a uh, very in-depth study conducted by the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. So one of their biologists, Scott McClellan, will be here to break down that research, which occurred over like a 15-year period or something like that. But he'll give us all the details on what I believe is one of the most fascinating predator-prey relationships I've heard of in recent memory. Um, so that's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one. guarantee you that. Quick giveaway. Let's knock one out here. How about, let's see, how about a First Light Lone Star Outdoor Show cap. It's got my logo on it. It's the First Light Cypher. We'll throw in a sticker and a can of Lone Star Outdoor Show Pyro Putty. We'll do three winners today, so three prize packs. Just email the word Fisher, that's Fisher, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Let's take a quick break. Up next, rabbit hemorrhagic disease. We'll discuss with Dr. Bob Dittmar of Texas Parks and Wildlife. And I don't want to hit the good side of this goodbye. If you want to go, baby, just leave. Don't tell me that you still care. And that I'll always be special because his words don't mean a damn thing. And I hate that I'm still loved. Hey guys, Cable here for Coon Stopper. If you're tired of losing corn or protein to those pesky raccoons, well, here's your solution. If you're running a traditional feeder that has, you know, those long legs that coons like to climb up, rob you blind, well, you just attach the Coon Stopper to each leg. It's so easy. I just put one on a 300-pound all-seasons feeder, and <laughs> the results speak for themselves. Coons don't like it. They basically attempt one time, realize that it hurts, and they're done. Throw in the towel, just like that. It's the Coon Stopper, and you can find it at alamooutdoorworld.com. Been lost for a long time. Kept on searching for something I never could find. You come along and do it all. Little folk soul revival bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you today. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention. I don't know if y'all saw this, but my lord, they took Elmer Fudd's gun away. Yosemite Sam's too. New Looney Tunes reboot is coming out, or maybe it's available right now on HBO. I will not be watching that. And I love Looney Tunes. My kids, um, they're at that age where they think it's hilarious as well. And it, Looney Tunes is one of those things that it doesn't matter how old you are. It's still funny. And it's not like Elmer or Yosemite ever hit anything. I mean, he he misses bugs at point blank range every single time. Uh, my goodness, it's just 
liberalism at every corner. And uh, I'll go back to what Corey Morrow told me a couple months ago when we were sitting here in the studio. He said, you know, everyone's offended all the time, but you don't have the right to not be offended. Think about that. You don't have the right. If it offends you, don't watch it. Uh, it's that simple. It doesn't offend me, though. I wish they wouldn't have done that, uh, but I'm out. Looney Tunes reboot. You suck. Um, we are about to visit with Texas Parks and Wildlife head veterinarian Dr. Bob Dittmar concerning a new disease that maybe this could actually kill bugs, uh, but rabbit hemorrhagic disease. It is something that we haven't seen before. It's not native to North America. Uh, but before we dive into that situation, this segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right, uh, let's bring him on right now, making his return to the presentation. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Bob Dittmar back to the show. Oh, yes, sir. Thank you for having me. So last time we spoke, it was on CWD in Texas Whitetail, and uh, our uh, Whitetail program leader, Alan Kane, jumped on with you, and we had a pretty good discussion concerning um, CWD and whether or not it was the end of the world for uh, Texas cervids. Turns out it's probably not. It's something to monitor. Um, but I recently became aware of another disease, and this is one that, uh, I, like I said, I didn't know anything about it until, well, actually my son, <laughs> uh, we shot a, uh, a cottontail in the backyard with the Red Rider, and I posted a picture of it, and somebody sent a link saying, hey, you might want to uh, check this out, and it was about rabbit hemorrhagic disease. So where did, where did this thing come from, uh, and, and how long has it been in our neck of the woods. Yeah, well, and that's uh, that's uh, one of the reasons and not many people knew much about it is that it hadn't been um, in North America till a few years ago. Huh. And uh, and uh, very definitely not in Texas or the Southwest. Um, and um, uh, basically the disease uh, was first... Uh, have actually discovered or um, documented gets where in China in 1984, hmm. and um, uh, since that time, a uh, and it was it was a rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus. Lots of viruses um, originating in China these days. Yeah, right. That's just <laughs> I imagine that. But uh, um, anyway, uh, in sometime later on there was another variant emerged in uh, Europe and, and the original virus uh, seemed to only affect domestic rabbits but this new variant um, uh, does affect wild rabbits as well hmm. and, and there have been a couple of outbreaks around the world in uh, Australia and other places uh, and, uh, and then in North America there have been a couple of small outbreaks, primarily in um, feral domestic rabbits um, up in the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia and a couple of islands off of the off of the um, Washington coast up there. 
And then there have been some odd things like they had some um, a case in New York City and another outbreak, I believe, in Ohio. Uh, but then about um, – and, and so rabbit hemorrhagic disease is considered a foreign animal disease because it's not endemic in North America. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, at the end of March, we became aware from New Mexico – uh, that they were experiencing some rabbit die-offs and had submitted some samples that uh, eventually came back from the National uh, Foreign Animal Disease Laboratory in Plum Island that it was rabbit hemorrhagic disease, and it was the RHDV2 uh, variant, which does affect domestic, uh, I mean domestic and wild rabbits. Mm-hmm. So since that time, it's now been found in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Colorado, Nevada, and California. Uh, so and and old Mexico as well. So that's uh, pretty widespread, and and it's spread pretty, I mean, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. If that's only uh, you said in when when did New Mexico discover that? In in March. Oh wow. And, yeah, it spreads pretty quickly. This is a this is a very contagious disease. It's a, a very hardy virus. It's a Colisi virus. It's not coronavirus. It's mm-hmm. a Colisi virus, and it it uh, has uh, it's very hardy. It survives well. It stands drying, high temperatures, cold temperatures. Uh, it can remain viable in carcasses and and on you know uh, can, you know. Uh, 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 can pass through scavengers in the feces and remain viable, and and so it has a lot of potential for <clears throat> maintaining itself out in the environment. Hmm. What does it do to an infected individual? Basically, uh, the, the the main lesions you see are in the liver, but as a, as a descri- the you know the name describes it's hemorrhagic disease, so you see hemorrhage. Uh, primarily in the lungs, and so you will you may see either ocular or nasal bleeding, um, but most of the time it's sudden death. They die very quickly. Um, sometimes you you may see some symptoms, and that ranges everything from being kind of depressed and not responsive to some of these rabbits actually seem kind of excitable. Uh, may have seizure-like episodes before they die as well. Mm-hmm. So. Should hunters be concerned? I mean, we've never seen EHD transmitted from whitetail or other cervids to humans. So what is the concern here with uh, rabbit hemorrhagic disease? Yeah, as far as we know, it's not transmissible to humans uh, other animals, uh, uh, pets, other than pet rabbits or things like that. So, so as far as a risk to humans, uh, there does not appear to be anything. Um, the real concern for hunters would be maybe spreading this from place to place uh, through moving carcasses, uh, contaminated equipment, uh, clothing, things like that. Hmm. Well, it sounds like we said, as we hit on earlier, it's uh, it's spreading like wildfire, no doubt about that. Um, and so it transcends all wild species of Lagomorpha, so hares, jackrabbits, cottontails. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I guess there's some question uh, of some of the lagomorphs that we don't have, like pikas mm-hmm. and snowshoe hares, um, things like that, uh, which, you know, are more northern. And at this point in time, I don't think there's been any reports in any of those critters. So, so is is it, that makes me think, so hares obviously live, snowshoe hares are going to live uh, 
in a much colder climate. But you said this was in British Columbia. So is this disease, you know, is it more um, prolific in warmer climates? Um, I don't know that I can answer that question. It, it doesn't appear to be because it's uh, been found in cooler climates as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said, it, it, it apparently uh, is able to survive cold temperatures. Yeah. Hmm. So what is the what is the long-term outlook here? I mean, like, this oh. thing has spread so fast, and it's, like like you said, it's deadly. Uh, infected rabbit's going to die and die quickly. Uh, so, it, I mean, this, this looks pretty bad. Yeah, and, and that's a good question, and, that, and that's going to be the – you know, we're going to have to see what the outcome is. Yeah. Um, you know, rabbit populations wax and wane quite frequently. And uh, interestingly, we have some data I found out that our upland uh, game bird people count rabbits when they're counting quail. Huh. And and so we actually have some data about rabbit numbers across the state. And interestingly, quail numbers and rabbit numbers or uh, correlate very well. Mm. <laughs> we have high quail populations. We have high rabbit populations, and obviously that's probably tied to rainfall. Yeah. So, so actually, right now we're kind of in a downward trend, uh, or appears to be a downward trend in our rabbit population because we've had a couple of pretty dry summers. Um, mm-hmm. So that may be helpful in our numbers are lower, so it won't spread as well. This also seems to affect mostly adult rabbits. So. Uh, and, and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but there may be some of these younger rabbits that are exposed and don't die, hmm. and and uh, they may develop immunity. So uh, that would be good. We're going to have, <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to see. The other thing I can say is from the reports that we've been getting across the state, we we seem to have areas where we have fairly high mortalities, and, and of course it's. It's really hard to count that. First off, with COVID, our staff has not been out and about like mm-hmm. they usually are, and so we're, you know, depending on uh, reports from the public, and those tend to be spotty to start with. Um, but we're seeing places where we're, we're seeing fairly high mortalities. You know, 50, 100, 200 rabbits that somebody reports. And that's a guesstimate. You know, there's nothing scientific about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other places, very few. Uh, but realizing that rabbits are scavenged pretty quickly, and so they disappear quickly off the landscape. But in in almost all those places, we are uh, still seeing live rabbits. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't appear to have come in and wiped out the population. Now, over time, is it, you know, what's going to happen in that population? Are, are, are those going to, has it passed through and those guys are going to be okay? Or are we still going to experience mortalities there? And we're going to have to see. Hmm. Uh, some of our staff up in the panhandle has been flying pronghorn surveys. And one of the biologists that's uh, involved in monitoring this reported back, they saw quite a few rabbits when they were flying surveys, uh, even in some of the counties up there where we've had reports. Of, in, in confirmed cases. Mm-hmm. Um, now, New Mexico is reporting high numbers of mortalities. They've uh, reported uh, <clears throat> in some areas, they think maybe tens of thousands of rabbits have died. Wow. Uh, in, in other areas, thousands. And I, I can't say that we have seen that sort of numbers. Hmm. Well, you think about a rabbit, um, I, I, really, I don't think people think about rabbits. You see one and you're like, oh, cool, a rabbit. 
Um, but when you talk about the overall food chain, I mean, they're so vital to birds of prey, coyotes, mm-hmm. bobcats. I mean, you name it, they're, they're pretty far down on the bottom of that. And a lot of life depends on those species, those rabbit species. So uh, this could be a pretty profound thing if, uh, if we do see large-scale die-offs. Exactly. That's the other thing that remains to be seen, what effect it might have on those uh, those other prey species that rely on rabbits. Mm-hmm. And and not only uh, are, you know, what effect it will have directly, but will they shift their, uh, particularly some of the larger predators like coyotes, will they shift their, uh, you know, emphasis on uh, field air ponds or pronghorn ponds, uh, things like that. Yeah. So that remains to be seen what the ripple effect might be. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you combine that with a uh, hopefully there's not going to be a dry summer that that could that could have an effect on a lot of species. You're right. Yeah. So a couple of things to take away from this: the disease, say a coyote stumbles upon one that is dying or is dead and and eats it, or a buzzard does, or whatever. Those droppings, that scat will contain um, contagious elements of the disease. So so that's how it can still be, like you said, uh, passed through the food chain, even though the coyote or the red-tailed hawk is not going to suffer from the disease. Right. Yeah. That, that, um, I'm not sure to what degree that uh-huh. can happen, but yes, that there's the potential for that. So very hardy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if a hunter or just a hiker, outdoorsman, sees a rabbit that is dead and you know, doesn't have any visible signs of a struggle or something like that, like, do you guys want us to report that? Uh, yes, we'd, you know, we'd like to document where uh, it's occurring so, so we have an idea of what the effects might be. Uh-huh. And, and that would be, you know, if they notice, you know, not just one animal, one, one rabbit or jackrabbit, but, but, you know, several in an area. Uh, to ask them to get in touch with their local biologist, and they can go to our website and, and the search engine type in find a wildlife biologist, and they, they will lead them to links to find out who's the biologist in the area. Hmm. And, and we'll make you know every effort we can to collect samples and submit them. Uh, one thing that's been happening because of the widespread nature of this and because it's considered a foreign animal disease, we have a few more hoops to go through to get them tested. And, and right now they have to all go to the all the samples uh, for confirmation have to end up at the foreign animal disease lab in Plum Island, New York. And so we're, we're trying to, you know, once we document um, a positive I mean, this is like the COVID study, testing. We need to get some tests down in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's one of these, uh, uh, you know, it's... Uh, because it's a foreign animal disease, it kind of falls into a special category. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, we're 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 trying to document which counties. Uh, you know, when we have policies, we're probably not going to submit any more samples from those counties. Uh, but we still want to document the mortalities and, and know what's happening and keep an eye on things here. So yes, we'd ask that they report it to their biologists. Hmm. Well, I guess the takeaway is. Nothing's immune in 2020, not even the rabbits. Everything's a fair game. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, we can only go. Uh, we can only go forward from here. So uh, <laughs> the world will continue to spin on its axis, and hopefully, we can. You know, 
who knows what the future looks like. Like you said, it's all speculation at this point. But Yeah, yeah. It, it seems in the places where this has been a problem before, you, it, it tends to be sort of cyclic. You mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, you, it's kind of like uh, HD and deer. You'll, you'll have a flare-up, and it'll die out. And then, you know, things go along for a while, and you'll have a flare-up, and it'll die out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it remains to be seen what mm-hmm. the long-term impacts are going to be. Well, Dr. Dittmar, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and educating us on rabbit hemorrhagic disease, uh, something that is new and foreign. Um, and that, I, like I said um, at the beginning of our discussion, I had no idea about until this week. So, uh, well, what I appreciate you having me. I'd like to say that if folks uh, want more information, they can go to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department website. And in the uh, in the search engine, type in wildlife diseases in Texas, and there will be a link to rabbit hemorrhagic disease. And we we try to keep that uh, updated with um, other sites that you can get information on it. But we we put in a situational update whenever we have new cases or a group of new cases, and there's some maps in there and things like that. Uh, we we you know want uh, hunters to be particularly careful about uh, carrying the disease somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So we've got some recommendations for hunters in there. And, okay. Um, so that like I said, it's on our website. And I imagine just for our audience that's listening outside of Texas, their state wildlife agencies probably have something similar as far as diseases are concerned on their website. So Ex- exactly yes okay. and. And because this also affects domestic rabbits, there is a crossover between the wildlife agencies and the agricultural health agencies like in Texas, Texas Animal Health Commission. Uh-huh. Well, cool. Now, well, I certainly do yeah. appreciate your insight today, and I look forward to our next discussion. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Dr. Dittmar, you have a good one. You too. Bye. So there you have it. Everything you need to know, well, everything that, there is to know up to date on the rabbit hemorrhagic disease. Uh, thanks to Dr. Dittmar. Um, that segment of the show was brought to you by First Light's Guide Light Short, which, by the way, you can get in the new ash gray color, as you can with most of First Light's lineup now. But the Guide Light Short is what I've been living in this spring and summer from uh, scouting for turkeys to filling up feeders to fishing down on the coast last weekend. It keeps you cool in the summer heat as well. And it's stylish enough to wear to the bar if they ever open back up. It's the Guide Light Short. You can find it at firstlight.com. First Light, go further. Stay longer. Coming up next, a very interesting predator-prey relationship we visit with man biologist Scott McClellan. It's the Lynx vs. the Fisher on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Guess I'll meet you in the middle. British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a Boone or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, 
They've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. Howdy, folks. I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader? Then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. But at the end of the day, nobody cares for coyotes. We're gonna burn us out, burn us out of time. The second two feet slide, nobody cares for coyotes. Men and Coyotes, the name of that one from Red Shahan, bringing us back on the Lone Star. Outdoor show. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Do appreciate it. And I think we've got an absolutely fascinating topic to get into coming up here in just a second when biologist Scott McClellan joins us from the great state of Maine. But before we get into that discussion, this segment of the show brought to you by the brand new Vortex Optics Diamondback HD 15 by 56 binos. You know, hunting the backcountry is tough enough without having to carry unnecessary gear. And that's where this new bino comes in because if you want to get rid of some of that extra weight, what is one of the first things that goes? It's always a spotting scope. And that's okay because with the Diamondback HD 15 by 56, you've got that 15 times magnification gives you the raw power to glass at distance, while the HD optical system provides superior image resolution and improved light transmission. You can also mount it on a tripod for increased stability, no problem there. And you're gonna love this part, MSRP 479. So pretty affordable on that front for a great backcountry optic. It's the Diamondback HD 15 by 56. You can find it at vortexoptics.com. All right, uh, moving right along here. Let's bring on our next guest. He's a regional wildlife biologist with, well, I always get these confused because it should be simple, like Texas Parks and Wildlife, right? Or Colorado Parks and Wildlife. But when these states have to trick it up, it's the uh, Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. It's my pleasure to welcome Scott McClellan to the show. Yeah, likewise. I'm excited to be on your show. Absolutely. And uh, I know you're a little nervous. I won't I won't beat you up too bad. Uh, I'm surprised that you haven't done any of these interviews previously uh, based off this research that we're going to talk about today. I've done one previously. I think it's been a couple of years ago with National Geographic. They uh, they took interest in the story and, mm-hmm. and called up and um, had some discussion about it. And other than that, you know, some emails uh, about it and not a lot. I mean, it is it is pretty exciting stuff, and we were very excited to 
um, to to finally publish our results. And so I'm I'm glad that you're calling cable and and getting more of the word out because it it is a pretty fascinating phenomenon. Yeah, it really is. Um, and we're going to talk about it. But but first, a, a little a little background um, on you. Uh, how long have you been with Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife? So I began working with them in 2004, and that was that was I've had a I've had two different jobs with them, and that was my first one mm-hmm. uh, related related to Canada Lynx research. And my position now is a I'm a regional wildlife biologist in um, in northern north central uh, north central Maine. Um, I've got 125 towns of Maine in my jurisdiction, and which is about one seventh of, of the state of Maine, uh-huh. which is a pretty large, which is a pretty large state. And yeah. so, so I deal with everything now from deer to moose to butterflies to everything in between, including lynx. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a much different job than I had in 2004 uh, working with with lynx. That was the only that was my only job was to research lynx and um, study their, you know, the population demographics and mortality rates and mm-hmm. everything. So it was um, so 16 years and counting. Interesting. So I've never been to Maine, but uh, I hope to uh, head up there someday. You guys have great black bear hunting. Uh, so I think if I was going to come to Maine, that would be eat some lobster and hunt some uh, black bear would be on my to-do list. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good bucket list, and I I, I approve of both activities. Um, So historically, the Canada lynx was protected in Maine back in I think it was 2000, correct? Well, they've been they've been federally uh, they've been it's a federally listed species, and it still is. Yeah. Um, It and it has been since that time that you mentioned. Um, and nothing has changed. It's a state species of concern, um, but at the federal level, it's a threatened species. Okay. So protected, it, it was protected in, I was reading the report you sent, so 14 states in 2000, northern states, um, lynx was protected, and then 2014, it was protected across the entire lower 48. So I guess my, my first question would be why are lynx struggling or why were they struggling at the time uh, so much so that um you know the US Fish and Wildlife Service puts them uh, up as a protected species yeah it's that's going in a little bit into the into the weeds and into some unfamiliar territory but i know that it was it had a lot to do with the habitat mm-hmm. and basically an inadequate protection of habitat on federal lands um, that was one of the main reasons, but that's totally a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, yeah. Well, so their main their main food source is the snowshoe hare, correct? Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So are they abundant in Maine, or is Maine in like because obviously this species it's called the Canada lynx. It's it's it thrives across much of Canada and Alaska. Is Maine in you know, the lower 48, is that like fringe habitat, like marginal habitat? It is. And that was one of the reasons that uh, we initiated the, the study was because because lynx are at, at the southern extent of the range. Maine is, is very interesting. You've got, 
if you split Maine in half, the northern half looks very different than the southern half. The southern half is much more populated by humans and paved roads and agricultural country, et cetera, et cetera. The northern half is the opposite. Fewer people, fewer roads, mm-hmm. w- uh, extensive woodland, uh, boreal forest. Uh, so you've got the boreal forest to the north, and you've got the temperate, more northern hardwood forest to the to the south. And so, we, so we have Canada Lynx in the northern half of the state, and not not the southern half, basically. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, to protect something in fringe habitat. Like, maybe is it is it really supposed to be here? I don't know, because it's uh, you know, it's right on that edge. But you know, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so, so we were thirsting for for information ab- about that. Uh-huh. Like I mentioned, you know, survival rates and uh, home range sizes, and um, are you know, are these animals just transient animals coming from Canada? You know, being being an adjacent jurisdiction. Uh, so we were able to answer um, most uh, most of those questions, and certainly one of the things that we learned from that was uh, one of the sources of mortality, you know, yeah. related to related to Fisher. Yeah, which we'll get into coming up here. Um, but more about the lynx itself. This is an animal, um, and and how I actually found out about your research was I posted a video of my lynx mount on my uh, Instagram. And so I did uh-huh. a, a trap line trip to British Columbia a couple years ago. We caught three lynx. Uh, two of them, interestingly enough, we caught using lynx hindquarters in the in the sets. So I don't know how often they prey upon each other, uh, but that's their, that's their preferred bait up there. So that, I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. I know that um, intraspecific mortality has been documented, and I believe that happened in Canada, uh, where lynx um, killed and, and consumed other lynx. So, uh, so I'm not completely surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, the bait of choice is, is beaver. Uh, beaver is often the, the bait of choice for a lot of animals. Were you using uh, cage traps? No, these were actually pretty primitive. They they set up sticks. They found like three or four trees close together. They would cut some saplings and then stick them in the ground and make like a a pen, like a like okay. a pen with uh, three openings. And in each opening, they would set a snare, and then in the middle they would hang the uh, the bait of choice. So yeah, yeah, it was a uh, well. Yeah, we we do know that that lynx scavenge a lot. So whether it's a moose or other lynx or they they scavenge a lot. It's a free meal, you know, with mm-hmm. with little energy expended. So yeah. so why not? That's not very typical for for other cats from what I've seen like uh cougars and uh and the beaver beaver tail is a great bait for bear too. Yeah, it seems to work for a lot of different desired species. It's uh the the meat of it is very very greasy and I think animals are able to obtain a lot of calories from it. Um, I, I know firsthand just from going on a bear hunt in Alberta how how potent the smell of a of a rancid beaver tail is because the uh-huh. the uh, the outfitter has a four wheeler sets his bucket of rancid beaver tails on the front of it and then tells you to climb on the back. And so the, that smell is just blown in your nose for the whole 10 kilometers you're driving into the set. And 
uh, yeah, they they buy the the outfitter buys the tail, which has no use to the trapper, right? So the trapper traps right. them. The outfitter says, "Hey, save all your tails for me," and so they bury them and just let them ferment and become just rancid. <laughs> and then when the bears come out of hibernation, they're like, "Here's the most potent smell out there," and, and they just come in in droves. Um, yeah, I suspect they can smell that from quite a distance. I can still smell it right now just talking about it. It's gross. Uh, <laughs> but so back to the, the lynx, what are the most important food sources other than, say, the snowshoe hare? Um, for for northern Maine, mm-hmm. uh, we we have rough grouse and red squirrel. So those – in northern Maine, those were the three most common – food sources. Okay. So snowshoe hare being the the you know most common. Yeah. Like 95% and ruffed grouse or or partridge we you know often are called here mm-hmm. um and red squirrels. So but like I mentioned they do eat they will scavenge deer and moose and uh anything really. And now do you guys have pine martens up there? We do. Yep, we do. I was, um, my mount is actually of a lynx chasing a pine marten around a tree. Uh, that's pretty interesting. We don't we we've never documented any interaction between marten and lynx, uh-huh. uh, but they are certainly both land dwelling mammals that use the same same area of the state and the same forest stands. Um, so yes, we have those, and you know you're talking so northern Maine. You're talking, you know. Moose and deer and uh, snowshoe hare and uh, marten and fisher and uh, weasels, uh, just a a wide variety of things. And and it's so forested, you know, you can spend a lot of time in these woods and rarely, rarely see any of them. I I know some people that have never seen a marten in their entire life, some people that live in northern Maine, just because of how, you know, between nocturnal and how wooded the forest is there um and there aren't tons of them it's not like you know turkey and deer in places in maine yeah um it's a boreal situation and it's it's you know we we probably receive on average three to five feet of um snow at its deepest point in um in the winter months so yeah it's a it's a harsh environment no Mm -hmm. doubt Certainly, and the lynx is very well equipped to deal with it, as is the fisher, and we're going to get into the interesting relevation about their relationship after the break. That segment brought to you by Lone Star Beer's new Rio Jade Mexican-style lager. should be everywhere. It pairs perfectly with any Tex-Mex dish. I made moose poppers the other day, mini bell peppers stuffed with ground moose, Monterey Jack cheese wrapped in bacon, washed it down with a cold Rio Jade from Lone Star Beer. We continue the conversation with Maine biologist Scott McClellan after the break on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Sunday Saint Fooling your neighbors That's what you think Reading the good book Singing the hymn Come Monday morning And it's back to a life of sin 
Hey guys, Cable here for QuietCat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. QuietCat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a QuietCat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, QuietCat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. It's everything between the Sabine and the Rio Grande. It's the Yano, it's the Tocado. It's the Brazos and the Colorado. It's the spirit of the people that's y'all who share this land. It's a night of burrito. It's a cold on star in my hand. It's a quarter for. There's our very own Gary P. Nunn. I tell you what I like about Texas, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Presented by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here as we're about to get into the meat of the conversation pertaining to links and fishers and i'm actually holding the skull of each one of these animals in my hand right now just thinking that there's no way this goes in favor of the fisher however main biologist scott mcclellan will share the results of a multi-year study conducted by their wildlife department here in just a second that's going to leave you scratching your head but first this segment Brought to you by Pulsar, night vision and thermal imaging technology. The Helion 2.0 thermal monocular is finally here. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. I had the original. It's probably my favorite monocular I've ever used. I love the Axiom because of the small size and affordability, but man, the Helion's clarity is unmatched. Now they've got the 2.0 model, and you'll save 20%. Off your order of any Pulsar monocular or binocular uh, when you use my promo code Lone Star underscore PL. That's Lone Star underscore PL at PulsarNV.com. Well, jumping back into it here with biologist Scott McClellan, we certainly appreciate you sticking around, brother. Thank you so much. The Lynx is, I think, quite deceptive when it comes to their size. The fur makes them look larger than they really are. And, um, uh, <laughs> The the largest of the three links we caught on my trip was it was a big male and the trapper I was with said hey you know I'll be honest with you they don't come any bigger than this and we weighed him um, he was 22 inches tall and weighed about 37 pounds so wow yeah a big big cat we have but yeah that oh sorry no no I, I was gonna say we have uh, we have bobcats that are bigger than that in in Texas but I just looking at him I, mean, I thought he was gonna weigh 50 pounds. Yeah, well, they stand tall, and they're extremely lean, well-furred. You know, they have to stay on top of that three to five feet of snow mm-hmm. that, that I'm mentioning. So, 
You're right. I've heard some people that have never, you know, had a length in hand, you know, think that they're 100 pounds or more um, because they do. They stand they they stand quite tall and they're you're exactly right. I think deceptive deceptive is a good word to use uh, to describe them. The, the largest length that I've ever weighed, I don't know how many I've handled now, um, you know, over 100, but the largest is a male that weighed about 30 or 31 pounds, if I recall. Okay. Well, you know, the farther north you go, the bigger things get. So. Bergman's rule, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so 30 pounds would be a big length for Maine. Um, mm-hmm. That's the the typical size, though, would be, what, closer to 20 pounds? For females, and certainly if you aver- averaged them, it would probably be more like 23, 24 pounds. Okay. On, on average between all individuals. We've discussed how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service protected the Canada lynx um, in the lower 48 per the Endangered Species Act, but you know, it looks like Maine had already started its own research prior to that because I'm looking at the study you, you sent me, and it goes back to 1999. So, yes. And so what was the, originally, what was the goal of, of this study? We were looking at, I say we, uh, some of my predecessors. I was still, I was just fresh out of college when that study began, so I wasn't a part of of it when it began. Um, but one of the goals was just to look at population demographics, trying to understand uh, survival rates, mortality factors, um, you know, whether these animals were you know, transient animals from Canada, mm-hmm. uh, dispersal rates, reproduction, um, trying to trying to figure out you know more localized information um, than what was uh, than what had previously been been documented elsewhere. And so, what were the parameters of of the study? Did you guys trap and collar a bunch of links, or or how was you know how was this data documented? So the study, even though our 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 paper doesn't uh, discuss this. The study actually began in the early to mid-90s just through track surveys. Uh-huh. So several qualified biologists would spend, you know, days and days and really all, all winter long on snowmobiles to to try and document, um, you know, where lynx occurred in northern Maine. And once they did that, once they figured out that, okay, they're they're here, uh, where can we set up a, a study area, a four-township study area, where there appear to be uh, plenty of lengths that we can capture and, and research? So that's, that's where 1999 uh, comes into play. That's when they started uh, setting, setting traps to, to live capture these lengths and um, and each animal would be anesthetized and evaluated. Um, a radio collar would be affixed to the neck. Um, ear tags would be applied. Blood would be drawn. Morphological measurements. All those things that that biologists do. And and then that became that becomes a study animal that we would track from both the ground and from a plane. Okay. And so about how many? individuals were trapped and collared? So over the course of 12 years, the study the study ran until 2010. Uh-huh. 
So over the course of 12 years, we captured and handled 187 uh, links, um, 85 of which were radio collared. Uh, the other, the, the remainder of the animals were, you know, kittens that were just ear tagged, um, you know, because we would visit the dens each spring, all the all the females that had radio collars, their dens would be visited by uh, by biologists, and we'd mark the kittens. We'd take a you know a small blood sample and DNA sample, and and um, so so not every animal was radio collared. You know uh -huh. you can't you can't put a radio collar on a you know half pound kitten. And so you do this obviously when the mom is out hunting. Um, no, usually she's, uh, they're very attentive and very loyal to the den. Usually she's there. Um, so we would go in and she would, um, she would just have, have to leave and she would, she wouldn't go far. She'd usually let us know that she was close by. Mm -hmm. Um, like I say, it's very wooded. So a lot of times we wouldn't even see her. Uh, but sometimes we could hear, you know, some growling in the distance. Um, but our, our job was, you know, was was quick and um, get in and get out so that she could um, she could continue being a good mother. It's uh, I think it's like a misconception that animals will just abandon their young once humans have handled them. Yeah, I've I've spent a lot of time working with with mammals. Uh, I spent a lot of time working with moose now, and um, I spent some time in the southeast working with with red wolves and coyotes and. I I've never been concerned about abandonment issues. It's it's never I can't say it's never happened, but it's it seems extremely rare. Mm -hmm. Well, so going back to the study, you guys trapped these links. You said using uh, beaver. I'm I'm assuming cage trapping, but um, it just reaffirms my love of trapping because I don't think people realize how much of a role it plays in all kinds of wildlife research. Yeah, w without it, I'm not sure where we'd be. I mean, you know, there is technology now that exists, you know, to capture, you know, hair, you know, by use of hair snares and barbed wire. Um, that work's been done on black bears and, and other species. But, um, but boy, to be able to to capture an animal and and to do it in a humane way. Uh, these are these are these traps are approved at all, you know, at a very high level uh, for the safety of the animals. And um, not only did we use cage traps, but we we did use foothold traps too that are rubber padded. The uh -huh. jaws are. Um, so, you know, we we weren't going to uh, use a method that was going to induce harm to the animals. Sure. And. Um, that would yeah, be that thing. would be counterproductive when you're trying to study them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Very much so, yeah. And you know, not just the the equipment, but the protocols as far as how often they get checked, um, under what environmental conditions they're checked. You know, for example, we're not going to foothold in the wintertime when there's an issue of uh, a concern of foot freeze. Mm -hmm. um, so. So we were very, very particular about our methods, and uh, we had wonderful success because of it. All the exact opposite, from my experience. We were trying to kill them as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, but so this research revealed something very interesting pertaining to the relationship 
between fissures and lynx. And I would have thought, you know, the lynx probably has very few predators in that part of the world. Maybe, maybe black bear seems like lynx would be so much more elusive though, quicker, maybe coyotes. Um, I don't know if they have any other predators, to be honest. I'm sure you, you have information on that. And you probably had thoughts on what those predators were going into this study. Yeah, correct. And, and, and the information that we had was from other researchers in other areas of North America. Um, so wolverines had been documented predators, coyotes, um, I believe black bear was one of them. I'd, I'd have to look at, I'd have to look at the paper to, uh, to confirm all those. But there were a wolves, I believe, was was one of them. Mm-hmm. But just a hand, but but just a handful of, of species, and so we didn't really know what to expect. Um, yeah, the you know the obvious, the obvious animals you know that you would think about were the two that you mentioned you know coyotes and black bear yeah um, but that didn't that didn't uh that didn't hold true in our study yeah and and i have to be honest um going back to that video i posted on instagram one of my uh, followers his name is jeff williams he commented uh did you know fishers kill and eat lynx and i was uh pretty dismissive i was like that's that's crazy because you know, I've I've held a thirty something pound lynx, and I've we also on that trip, we caught one fisher. And for that part of BC, it was very rare that the outfitter was uh, most excited ab- above the wolves, wolverine, lynx. The thing he was like most excited about was the fisher. And so, <laughs> I go back to that fisher, and I'm uh, thinking, holding it in my hand, thinking about that moment. It's like there's no way this thing could kill a lynx and eat it. Um, but he pointed me. He mentioned your name and pointed me in the direction of your research. And I was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta sort this out and uh, talk about this information. Uh, so thanks to Jeff for the uh, the heads up there. And yeah. um, I, I guess take me to the point in the study where it became obvious for the first time that you know a fisher had had killed this cat. Well, like I mentioned, when that happened, it was. I was fresh out of college and living in North Carolina, working with Red Wolves at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, unfortunately, I wasn't a part of the, you know, the first handful. Yeah. Um, but some of my um, some of my colleagues that are um, very distinguished and, and excellent biologists, they, you know, it's funny you mentioned your how skeptical you were because they were too. And I think we all were like, how, how is this possible? We've never heard of it. There's such a size differential. So, I mean, I think the lynx is a badass predator and the, and the fisher, you know, how big is a fisher? What does it weigh? I'd guess like five to 10 pounds, maybe. The females generally weigh about that. The males weigh on the on, in the order of 10 to 15 pounds. Okay. So, you know, we we don't know whether female fisher were responsible for killing lynx or whether it was just the males. That we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, all all we know is that fisher were, were were doing it. And okay, so the obvious question is, how could you prove that fishers were doing it? I'm sure that y'all had to connect the dots, and there's probably multiple 
factors that played into that. But we are going to have to find out after a quick commercial break. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Arluck Outfitters, offering the finest in Newfoundland moose hunting. I took a nice bull there in October towards the tail end of their rutting season. The guides are second, third generation outfitters. They've got a wealth of knowledge, great accommodations, food, the whole gambit. Um, and it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg or your firstborn child like going to Alaska or the Yukon. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I hope to do that someday as well. Uh, but you can find them at ourluckoutfitters.com for your Newfoundland moose hunt. We'll be right back with more from Maine biologist Scott McClellan on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. And as far as I can tell, we might both end up in hell, but you're sure as hell going first. I'm chasing tail lights straight as a crow flies, hunting just a stand of country road. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Hey guys, this is Jason Christie, and thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. This is my river hat. I've had it for years. I've shared some good times in it and drank a lot of beers. It fell in a campfire on the banks of the Comal River. It burned a hole clean through it. Chuck said it matched my liver. Well, Roger so Craiger, River Song, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you for being here today as we are talking oh, about an interesting relationship between two species that I find fascinating. And I've always thought lynx were fascinating. Really didn't give much thought to fishers. I think maybe Marty Stauffer. That Wild America show, I saw something about fishers some 30 years ago as a kid. That was pretty much all I knew about them. Uh, nobody ever sees them. So, I don't know, I just kind of forgot about them. But when I caught one in British Columbia, I was like, ah, oh, these are pretty cool. Didn't think they were cool enough to kill a lynx, which is what we're talking about today with Maine's Inland Fisheries and Wildlife Department biologist, Scott McClellan who was a big part of that research project that actually discovered this relationship uh, between these animals. So we're going to dive back into that and find out how fishers do the deed, if they can tell. I mean, does it look like a, a crime scene when they come up to these kill sites? Um, we'll find out momentarily. This segment, however, brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. My friend Zach Gates, he's the second-generation owner, he wants me to reiterate that All Seasons Feeders is made in America with American engineering, not made in China. So, if you want to support American products, you want to support Texas specifically, pick yourself up an All Seasons Feeder, and you can find their entire lineup. I like the 600-pound stand and fill, but you can find it as well as the other models right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. Well, let's, uh, let's get back into it here with biologist Scott McClellan. We certainly appreciate you sticking around. Oh, no problem. Glad to be back. 
So you alluded to the fact previously that you guys knew fishers were responsible for killing these lynx, but talk about how. What gave it away? We were able to recreate these events because there was snow on the ground. And it was just interesting because I, there, there wouldn't be any other tracks there. And, you know, there were, there were signs of struggle, um, you know, fresh blood. Uh, a lot of times we had a, you know, carcass that we could do a necropsy on. You know, and initially, too, you know, they were thinking, oh, well, a, a fisher just just came across this animal, just happened upon it in its travels, and the lynx was already dead, and it just scavenged it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what fishers do, too. You know, they, they do as much scavenging as black bears and lynx and coyotes and all the other uh, forest carnivore, carnivores in, in northern Maine. So... It it really took the work of um, you know biologists performing necropsies with the help of pathologists to uh, you know to help determine um, this. E- even though their gut was like, "Wow, this this seems pretty obvious." Mm-hmm. Uh, the necropsies, you know, really um, you know really told completed the story. So, are they like is part of that measuring these bite marks or? What what are the the necropsies proving? The necropsies were valuable in that they were showing hemorrhaging, and for for all the hunters out there that harvest animals, whether it be a bear or a moose or deer, when when a bullet passes through an animal, it it bleeds in, internally. You know the muscle matter. We've all seen that dark purple, blackish uh, hemorrhage material, um, you know, surrounding the wound, basically. Yeah. And for anyone that's that's you know processed the, the, their own meat, they have to cut that out. They you know they have to remove that because because it's damaged and it's extensive blood that's coagulated. So. What we would do, we'd take a carcass, what was left of it, and we would skin, we would skin the animal back. Um, we'd skin the the head and neck area. Uh, we'd skin the whole thing, but um, all of these bite marks were associated with the head and neck area of of these lengths. And it was an animal doesn't hemorrhage, you know, that dark purple black uh, coagulated blood that I just mentioned doesn't doesn't occur on on an animal that just laid down, died of whatever reason, and um, scavenged. Mm-hmm. It has to be a live animal that that can do, that can do that. So that's what we were seeing, and in conjunction with bite marks and evidence on site in the snow, uh, very, very, very telling, extremely telling. Yeah. So you could, I mean, you could measure these bite marks though, and say, okay, this isn't a coyote or I don't know if bobcat and her, you know, are, are also native to that area. Um, but I mean, you, you could just say you know, this is consistent with the uh, canines of a fisher. We, we use that as supporting evidence. It wasn't it wasn't as telling as you might think because, as you can imagine, a, a fisher attacking a live lynx. How how much of a struggle. <laughs> that must that must be um so what we learned was that they you know they they bite and they have to reattach and you know they're 
they're continually trying to get a different grip on the neck. So there were numerous uh, bite marks. So those would overlap each other a lot. So it was very difficult to see that that four canine pattern that mm. um, that you'd imagine in a perfect world, uh, just because of the whole rebiting issue. I think being attacked by a big weasel would be like one of the worst ways to go out. If you've ever watched like a mink, there's lots of YouTube videos of a mink like taking out uh, muskrats, uh-huh. and it is a it is about as violent as a, <laughs> a thing as you'll see. So I'm thinking yeah. like, what this would look like for a, a, a fisher half the size of a lynx to just be like the Tasmanian devil just going after it. I'd love to be a fly on a tree <laughs> watching that for sure. <laughs> oh, I, I've always wished that we had cameras on, you know, on radio callers to be able to witness it. Because I do think that it happens fairly quick because the because the attacks seem to be very, very, very targeted to the, the neck and head area. Mm-hmm. And there would be a lot of damage. You're talking broken uh, broken skulls at times, um, you know, broken. I don't ever remember the neck being broken, but, um, uh, yeah, I think I think a fisher is it's just a small wolverine, and, and it's packed with a lot of, of power. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, uh, based off of this research, there's no doubt about that. Now, did the fishers consume the whole lynx in most cases? Uh, it de- it would depend on how quickly we could uh, get there. See, our our pilot would be would fly two or three times per week. So, depending on how long the animal had been dead, mm-hmm. um, when, when we found out when he would call us about a mortality signal, we would drop what we were doing, no matter what no matter what day of the week it was or what the circumstance was, we would drop what we were doing and go investigate it because we know that, you know, time can be the worst uh time can be the worst enemy as far as trying to collect evidence. Um so getting there quickly was paramount and sometimes there would there would be most of the animal would be missing. And other times it had just happened, so hmm. it, it it just depended on how many days prior the fisher had had made the attack. And there were some animals that we just never, we just we just couldn't make that uh, we couldn't make that call, whether it was fisher or, or or what. So so there were you know several animals that um, that were just undetermined as far as what killed them. And this didn't happen. I mean. I want people to understand this didn't happen just once or twice. Like, uh, how many, you mentioned 187 animals, something like that, were part of the study, 80-something were radio-collared. How many mortality sites did you guys visit, and and, um, what percentage of those were uh, committed by fishers? Oh, I'm kind of going by memory. I've got the paper in front of me, but it would be, it would it would take a little bit of time to figure that out. If I remember right, it was around sixty five mortalities that we that we investigated. Uh-huh. Predation predation was the number one. Uh, we had eighteen eight, eighteen links um, that were predated. Seventeen starvations. I do remember that. Uh, Seventeen, I believe, were undetermined. So so anyway, you know, mid sixties uh-huh. investigated. And of those 18 predation cases, 
14, we could absolutely, without a doubt, de- uh, determine was caused by Fisher. Wow. So this happens with, you know, some regularity. I, I mean, clearly these, these fishers, like, are preying on lynx intentionally on a regular basis. Yeah, and what was what was very interesting is that just about all of these occurred in the winter time. I believe there was one that occurred in November, mm-hmm. um, but either way, there was snow on the ground for all 14 cases. Um, and a lot of times, what we noticed too was that there was a um, it, there was a weather event. Uh, like light snow or some type of snow event or in some cases maybe even rain. But, uh, you know, we we wondered whether Fisher were actually going out in those inclement conditions to hunt and, you know, intercept the lynx track and pursue that way. Because as, you know, hunters that, for example, a hunter that tracks deer in the north country, on snow loves those inclement weather conditions where the wind's, you know, blowing, you know, hard or it's, you know, snowing or raining because they're quieter. And so I've personally wondered whether that was actually a hunting strategy on, on the part of the fisher. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, it just makes you respect these, the fisher that much more, uh, for what an awesome little hunter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. It, yeah, it's uh So it's not it's, it's not by chance. Like he's not just they're not walking through the woods. He's like, "Oh, there's a lynx. I'm going to attack it." It's he's hunting them down. And uh, No, I I think they were intercepting cuz we were actually able to to backtrack some of these uh some of these tracks and you know, we could backtrack, you know, both the lynx and fisher track and the fisher would I think it would intercept a lynx track and and realize how fresh it was and mm. pursue based on that, you know, versus awesome. them just wandering through the forest and seeing yeah. a lynx. I don't think that was happening. Huh. Well, so this has just been absolutely fascinating. Uh, as we're wrapping things up here, Scott, um, what, when did this study end? It's, it ended in 2000, either 2010 or 2011. 2010. Okay. Yep. So the study ended in 2010. When and when did you guys actually publish the findings? So I'm I'm sorry. I'm looking at the our abstract now. 2011 was actually the um, the end date of the the project. Okay. And so we published this paper. It got accepted by the Journal of Wildlife Management in 2018. Wow. So there's a lot of time there uh, to get something like this, which I would describe as uh, groundbreaking. That's why I was surprised that you hadn't done a lot more of these interviews. But uh, hopefully some phone calls will uh, result from our conversation. And uh, I, I think it's something that everyone needs to – I think people will just find it interesting. I know I find it fascinating. Um, yeah, it, it is. And, and even since the study terminated in 2011 um, – we we continue i don't want to get into the details too much but we we've we've continued to put radio collars on links and we've continued to learn that fisher are doing this elsewhere in the state too huh. and there were actually four or five samples that we sent 
um, that we sent off to a lab um, to determine to extract DNA from uh, from the predator. And so when we did this, we sent the information off, and they had no idea about the circumstances of the site or you know uh, you know our findings or what we thought or anything like that. And all all of the samples so far. Um, they extracted Fisher DNA from. Wow. And, and that was just and that was just taking taking tissue sample around the hemorrhaged area, you know, in close proximity to the bite mark, and they're actually able to determine, um, you know, you know, very very small fragments of of saliva from. Uh, from the predator, and all cases um, confirm Fisher, which is what we thought initially, anyway. Uh huh. Wow. Well, so was there any thought to saying, okay, we've, we're investing all this time and uh, money into studying the links, and now we know that Fisher are responsible for a, a very sizable percentage of the predation. Was there any thought into saying we need to start trapping Fisher or like removing some of them from the equation? Oh, Cable, you think just the way I do. <laughs> yes, I've I have been wanting to study Fisher and Lynx in the same area for um ever since I learned about those interactions mm. and um it would take a pretty it, it would take a pretty um it would it would be quite the commitment and both from a you know time and and monetary standpoint um and we haven't aggressively pursued that that route but i've always wondered whether it, whether it works the opposite you know are there times that the that the fisher i mean that the lynx is successful mm-hmm. killing the fisher cuz cuz there were two cases where there was fisher hair inside the mouth of the deceased lynx you know, just more evidence and just fascinating that that there was a struggle. Um, so I've always wondered if the lynx kill Fisher, and it and it would also be neat to know whether it's is it male Fisher that are doing this? Is it female? Is it uh, spread? You know, between both sexes? You know, I have no idea. It would oh, be a pie in the sky study for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, so how are the lynx doing now today? Uh, very well. We have, yeah, we estimate uh, about 1,500 adult lengths in you know northern um, in the northern half of the state that I mentioned earlier, um, and that that has been we're at a historic high now. Uh, we have places where there are lengths that um, that there weren't lengths five or ten years ago. So their geographic range across the state has has increased and um the population is as strong as it's ever been. So as a biologist isn't the goal to get to the point where they don't have to be federally protected anymore? Yes, and it's difficult because we are at the southern extent of their range, uh, so they are vulnerable to you know population change, but um so right now we do you know, we look at um, several pieces of data. One of those is is track surveys, and so we do track surveys. We look at camera data. 
uh, roadkill information. So we're able, actually able to glean some information from all that, including reproduction. Um, so, so right now, every, you know, either the population is stable or still on the increase, and we continue to monitor that on a yearly basis. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully someday they, they'll be uh, healthy enough. The population will be uh, strong enough to where we can take them off the list. Um, yeah, I know. I know that right now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is is working on a on their intent to delist. They announced that publicly a couple of years ago. So their intent is to do that. And again, that's a jurisdiction, um, you know, outside of. Um, I, I'm unfamiliar with that yeah. territory completely, but I know that they. They announced their intent to delist a couple of years ago, and that they're continually working on it. And I think it's it's within a uh, public comment period now. Um, so, uh, so right now that's the goal, and and that information was was gathered from from the states, these northern states, uh, Washington, Montana, Minnesota, Maine, Colorado, that that have length populations. So, um, yeah. So it's, we're waiting, and I guess we'll see. Perfect. Well, hey, I certainly appreciate the time today, Scott. Uh, interesting stuff, to say the least. And um, I think I was just more drawn to this story, having had my hands on both of these animals and, and been in their environment. Um, it's, uh, like I said, just something I was like, whoa, that is that true? <laughs> so. Well, your your fascination is, I, I think, normal because we all felt the same same way and you know after seeing you know 14 of them um i i I think the it's almost common knowledge here in maine now well hey i appreciate it uh if i'm ever up in your neck of the woods you'll buy me a uh a a lobster what is it a lobster hoagie or what do you guys have up there lobster roll yeah lobster roll that's right if i'm ever up there i'll (laughs) i'll invite myself to have you buy me a lobster roll how's that sound I will do that. <laughs> I'm sure you know anytime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Scott. Okay, thank you so much. So there he goes, Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife biologist, Scott McClellan. Man, I would love to see some trail camera footage of one of those encounters, the fisher taking down a mature lynx. That would be unreal. Uh, but likely won't ever happen because how can you predict (laughs) where that is going to play out? But if one could, that would be the prime place to put a Stealth Cam DS4K Max offering 4K video quality. It is the premier trail camera on the market, and you can find it as well as Stealth Cam's entire lineup at StealthCam.com. Unfortunately, looking at the clock here, we got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to both of our guests. Dr. Bob Dittmar, head veterinarian of Texas Parks and Wildlife, as well as Scott Dittmar. Um, We will do it again, same time, same place, next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. And I can hear his spurs a-jangling, the chimes of a slapping tag, as his horse lopes up a ridge.